Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. The weather is just insanely amazing right now on the West Coast. It looks like it's that way in Seattle too, so I just can't help but smile. It's great. Yeah, so I just got back in Seattle like two days ago, and apparently it was the weather has been absolute shit for like six weeks. And when I get here, it's just sunny and bright, and so uh, I'm okay. I'm, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, man, it's kind of unreal that it's February, but hopefully it continues going into Bitcoin 2020 at the end of March. We're super excited about that, and there's a lot of rooftop action. So, man, if this weather just continues, that would be incredible. Yeah, I remember uh, kind of walking up to the uh, top of your apartment for the uh, Bitcoin beefsteak event, and it was a little bit chilly, but then I had one beer and some nice warm steak, and it was perfect. This was a good episode. We talked to Richard Mao of Quantstamp, the CEO and co-founder. He has a deep history in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum trading, machine learning, so much good stuff. We talked a lot about DeFi attack vectors. And at the end, we kind of got to talk about the ecosystem as a whole, as well as how Bitcoin is being integrated into Ethereum. Yeah, I think this is a pretty timely interview coming right after the multiple BZX exploits. Uh, One thing I didn't know about Quantstamp is that they are not just a code auditor, but they are kind of a, a... game theory slash mechanism design auditor as well. They also look at the economics behind the various components of DeFi and make sure that there is an economic exploits as well as code or bugs. Uh, so that's that's a, a something I didn't know coming into this. Uh, Richard has been around when it comes to auditing this space. And so getting his insights as to how this ecosystem has progressed and where it is now was, was super valuable. Before we get into the episode, we want to do a a reverse ad. So if you guys heard our reverse ad a while ago, the way that this works is that uh, this is not a current advertiser of ours, but it is an advertiser that we want to come on into the future. And that advertiser is Bison Trails. All you Ethereans know that proof of stake is coming. Phase zero is slated for a launch in July. That means that we are going to stake our Ether. Yay! For all you guys that either hold your funds on Coinbase or use a Ledger or MetaMask or something simple and you don't run your own node, but you still want to stake and you don't want to stake on Coinbase because you want to keep control of your own funds, Bison Trails is the perfect place to do that. They are a a staking as a service company and they are where I will personally be staking my Ether when they enable that infrastructure to do so. Uh, and so if you guys want to hold on to your own funds, run your own node through Bison Trails and stake your own Ether on your own node, Bison Trails is the place to do that. They also host nodes and other services for many other blockchains as well. They are not just Ethereum focused. So all you Bitcoiners can go to uh, Bison Trails and check out their suite of services there. Um, so all you Ethereans, get your 32 ETH ready, uh, make an account on Bison Trails. Check out their website, bisontrails.co. And thank you for hopefully sponsoring the podcast in the future. And on to our real sponsors. The first up, we have eToro. eToro, you guys know how it goes. They have been on a mission to bring financial inclusiveness to the world. They started by bringing U.S. equities to Europe and other places across the globe. Uh, for Americans, this might not seem like a big deal. We can just download Robinhood or whatever and get access to all our favorite stocks. 
But elsewhere, this is a really big deal. American equities are the best because of the Cantillion effect. Because they're the best, it is important that everyone has access to it. eToro also got into cryptocurrencies really early on. They adopted Bitcoin as a major financial institution back in 2016 with a lot of foresight. Starting in 2019, they have brought their services to the United States. One of my favorite things that they have on their platform is their copy trader feature. You know, I think that the best thing about cryptocurrency is there's so much optionality about what you can do and how you want to allocate your money. And all of that optionality is available on eToro. With the copy trader feature, you can allocate in a passive way your money to an active trading style. So if you want to follow some of your favorite traders on the platform, you can passively allocate to that strategy. On the flip side, you can also index or my favorite, you can stack stats and pull those Bitcoin off the exchange into your hardware wallet like a good Bitcoiner. It's a one-stop shop. Check out eToro. And now for a limited time only, you can get a free Bitcoin 2020 ticket when you sign up for eToro and make a $100 Bitcoin purchase. So go to Bitcoin2020conference.com backslash eToro. Sign up for eToro through that. So that way you are eligible for a free ticket to Bitcoin 2020. Second, Unchained Capital. Parker Lewis, head of business development, was just on the podcast. He did an absolutely fantastic job of breaking down the first principles behind Bitcoin and Bitcoin native finance. Unchained Capital is a pioneer in Bitcoin native finance. First is their Vault product. This is easy multi-sig for all you Bitcoiners out there that want to evolve beyond just using one single signature and save your Bitcoins in the safest way possible. You can use Unchained Capital as a countersigner. It really feels like a VIP super rich setup where you sign and they give you a call. They make sure that you are good with making the transaction and then they countersign. It's a really kind of elite privileged type of a service that they're offering and it's all bitcoin native everything is on chain second is their loan product so they're trying to bring all the fantastic financial services to bitcoin and again bitcoin native the loans in the bitcoin that you collateralize to get your usd loans are never rehypothecated they're always on the blockchain and you can even hold a key so it's a third-party arbiter Unchained Capital and yourself, right? So this is the most fair Bitcoin native financial institution out there. Check out Unchained Capital on their website, unchained-capital.com. Check them out on Twitter at Unchained Cap or email them at hello at unchained-capital.com. That is enough of that and enough of me. On to the episode, Richard Mao of QuantSamp. Welcome everyone to POV Crypto. This week, I'm super excited to bring Richard Ma to the podcast. Richard is the co-founder and CEO of QuantStamp, one of our former sponsors and one of the great companies in the space. They have been working with a lot of the main smart contracts and companies that are interfacing with Ethereum in order to make sure that those applications are as safe as possible. Um, they're really keeping users' money safe and are responsible for making that happen across the ecosystem. So, uh, Richard, excited to bring you on and kind of get your insights into what you guys are seeing since you're one of the main institutions taking deep dives into these contracts. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, join the show and uh, really appreciate it, guys. 
So Richard, why don't we start off with your kind of story in crypto? How did you get here? Yeah, sure. Um, so originally I was really interested in crypto because uh, uh, I used to work in algorithmic trading. And uh, next to my trading desk, there was a Polish guy uh, who's doing system DevOps. And uh, we used to hang out in the server room. And actually on the weekends, he was using all the company servers to mine Bitcoin. Um, and uh, that's how I got like pretty interested in Bitcoin. Um, and afterwards, uh, when the Ethereum white paper came out, um, I got pretty interested in that. And when the DAO came out, I actually invested $25,000 into the DAO. Um, so that was my initial uh, initiation into um, the more like the programming side of uh, blockchain. Uh, and yeah, like, uh, uh, a, year, a year and a half after that, I actually started Quantstamp. Um, yeah, so that's about it. And what Quantstamp does is, you know, we help to uh, secure many different projects in the space. After you get your money back. <laughs> well, you know, what happened was that um, after the fork, we all ended up with Ethereum Classic. Um, so it's kind of turned out. All right. That's funny. A year after the DAO blows up, Quantstamp comes into existence. That's, uh, that's pretty perfect. And um, yeah, I think uh, since uh, we founded the company, the space has matured a lot. And actually, there's way more um, interesting attack vectors today uh, compared to back then. Um, so it's really been interesting working in the uh, space as like people have built these really interesting applications. You've, you've been with Quantstamp from the very beginning, right? So what are what were some of the earliest uh, things that you audited at, at Quantstamp? Like what were your guys, some of the, your earliest customers? What did they do? The earliest customer we audited was Request Network. And they were trying to basically make payments easier. They were creating these payment channels. And another really early project we audited was WeTrust. They were making these kind of trusted lending circles. And yeah, I think when we first started auditing, a lot of the projects were uh, token-based. And uh, most of the early projects we audited were the code behind the tokens. I mean, the great thing about auditing these tokens is that uh, there's a standard format for them. Uh, it's ERC-20 format. You basically can um, fairly exhaustively figure out if there's any type of attacks that's possible, like some way to freeze the token or maybe like steal all of the assets uh, or transfer them to someone else. I think as, uh, you know, projects have developed, they've launched like more interesting applications. And so they're not really templatized anymore. And that's uh, kind of where we are today. So over the course of Quantstamp's history, uh, can you kind of illustrate for us the various ecosystems that you guys um, have worked with and like the percentages that you work with? So is it like, it's probably a pretty dominant Ethereum, I would guess, because smart contract platforms mm. need to be you know, audited more. Is it like 80% Ethereum, 20% Bitcoin? What, what's that distribution like? And how has that changed over time? I think it's really changed over time. There's a lot more emphasis on Bitcoin today. Um, many of the projects that we've audited recently, they have been attempts to bring um, Bitcoin collateral with some type of uh, smart contracting capability. So one project is called RSK or Ripstock. It's like an Argentinian-based project that tries to bring some smart contracting functionality to Bitcoin. 
Uh, earlier on, they were much more Ethereum focused. Um, and there's like maybe five or six verticals of projects that we've done. So um, one of our closest uh, collaborators is Maker. Uh, so we've audited 11 different projects from the MakerDAO brand ecosystem. So I would label that vertical as like DeFi, decentralized finance. Uh, and they center around stable coins and lending and borrowing. Um, so it's kind of like replicating the traditional financial system using these new um, crypto primitives. Uh, and in that stable coin uh, bucket, we've also audited projects by like Facebook Libra. So eToro, which is an exchange, they actually built a number of projects on Libra. Uh, the second major vertical that we've been auditing are like base layer chains. So over the last yeah two and a half years, there's been a proliferation of different uh, projects that have tried to produce new types of chains. Uh, some of them include like major messaging apps like Kakao, which is uh, the biggest messenger app in Korea. And they created a chain called Clayton. And then the third kind of vertical that we've been doing is uh, permission networks uh, created by big companies. Like, um, and some examples of that include like Toyota, uh, Mitsubishi, Siemens. And also we did a project that we recently just finished for the Dubai government to track vehicles on the blockchain. Over time, there's been like different approaches that people have tried and we've tried to stay agnostic uh, in terms of which approach and just try to give people good unbiased advice on how to keep everything safe. Um, but yeah, this it's definitely a lot of things have changed over the last yeah, two and a half years for sure. So the big meme behind Ethereum is composability. Uh, so how does composability impact your auditing uh, requirements or auditing requirements in general? Uh, I would imagine that doesn't make things easy. Easy. Yeah, it's. Um, I think uh, actually, David, you're the guy who invented the Money Legos meme. Yeah, so unofficially, yes. Yeah, that was me. Mm -hmm. Everybody is saying Money Legos, um, and I think that's a really good description of it because uh, composability. Um, it's a double-edged sword. So what composability means? Just um, a quick explanation is that. You can build uh, different apps and then uh, somebody else can build a new app and use the existing apps and doesn't have to recreate it again. So um, a good example of that is a project called R-Trees. I think it's kind of a pretty illustrative example. Basically, R-Trees, they're built on top of R-Die and Compound. So Compound, it lets you get interest. So it's an app that lets you get interest. It's a, built as a smart contract. And then R-Die it allows you to um, give the interest to somebody else. So it's kind of another piece of money Lego built on top of a compound. So instead of getting the interest yourself, you can um, give it to somebody else. And then our trees, basically it's an app built on top of those two and it gives the interest to like a nonprofit and they plant trees with it. So you still get to keep like your stable coin but now, um, instead of like just uh, getting interest for yourself, you can plant trees. Uh, so it's a double-edged sword because um, if one of those money Legos, there's some bug in it, and many other projects are built on top of it, they're all affected. 
so it does compound the um, risk, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. You guys actually have a pretty extensive role with auditing uh, a bunch of different Ethereum projects. So, so you guys did like pool together. You guys did, um, you get, did you guys do MakerDAO? Uh, we didn't do MakerDAO, but we, uh, we audited any of the Right, so like pull, yeah, pull together, um, Sablier. Resume is pretty extensive. Uh, and so uh, how did, I, I feel like with, the, with this Money Lego meme that's floating around Ethereum, uh, you guys actually have like a role with m- most of the money Legos that are all kind of stacked together, uh, which is both like when you say yeah, that's a double-edged sword, that's like both really really cool for Quantstamp because you guys are you guys are, are don't have to worry about the trusting a different uh, uh, auditor, but at the same time you also have to trust all of your previous work. Like does that does that does that responsibility like or like is that how do you guys manage that responsibility? I think our main goal is to try to protect everybody um, because these are really new things that people are building um, and we've been trying to manage it by um, staying on top of the latest uh, different potential hacks um, one thing that we do is like we've audited over a hundred projects so when some new type of potential vulnerability is discovered we actually go back to the hundred of projects that we've done and try to see if uh, it's possible to hack one of those uh, using this kind of techniques. Another thing that we try to do is use a lot of automated tools that can find um, different types of potential attack vectors uh, and do it in an exhaustive manner. Uh, so over time, like those tools have gotten better. But yeah, overall, I think like what we try to tell our clients is always um, that to uh, roll out these projects slowly. Like don't have millions and millions of dollars in fairly new projects and take the time to have it slowly grow. Yeah, and yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a lot of responsibility, um, but someone has to do it. And also there's a lot of other good firms in the space that are um, doing work like that as well. So, Richard, I'm known as someone who is very skeptical about composability and money Legos in general. The reality is, is like, Mm. I look out at this like field of DeFi and I pretty much only maybe see one money Lego. And that is probably uh, Uniswap. The rest of these things, Mm. they just seem like companies. And Mm. like the fact that they're used as primitives when they're actually like kind of like company community DAO things that makes it seem like they're not super robust. And then when you start mm. like intertwining them with other similar organizations, you know, all of them are, in, are uniquely that have their own issues. That just makes the whole DeFi thing seem like super sus. If that makes sense, mm. it seems super suspect to me. It does not seem robust. Like what is your opinion on that take? What, what, what do, why do you think uh, Uniswap is a good money Lego? I'm kind of interested. David says it's actually decentralized, right? But I don't even know about that. It just seems like it's more like simple code primitive. It's like just this thing. And even that one contract mm-hmm. clearly can be replaced. Um, I don't know if the liqui- like what transferring liquidity looks like. That's a complicated and nuanced subject. Everything else really seems like a company to me. I think to a large extent, you're right. A lot of the current apps in DeFi, they have um, like administrator keys. So when we audit these projects, um, we look at different factors. Uh, For example, 
uh, we look at the um, kind of like external attacks that are possible, right? If there's something broken in the code, maybe you can directly like take the funds. But we also look at um, centralization of power. And I think maybe that's getting to the heart of uh, maybe why it doesn't seem robust, like from your perspective. Uh, because for many of these projects, uh, they still have, uh, uh, they keep that administrative power. And the reason is like, they're rapidly updating the projects. So almost all the projects in DeFi, um, there's still a lot of updates. And the reason is that um, I think it hasn't really gotten to the point where uh, Bitcoin is, which is that uh, it's kind of completely um, uh, been tested over time and kind of strengthened and uh, uh, have weathered various um, kind of like Byzantine attacks. So it's good and bad. I think it's a double-edged sword having these um, uh, central parties because uh, without having these like really motivated teams, it would not be possible to have this super rapid rate of progress and just like cambering explosion of different ideas that everyone is trying out. Um, and I think like most ideas fail. So if you just encourage like having so many different ideas, it's bound that, you know, maybe like one or 2% of them are gonna be successful. Um, so I think that's the double-edged sword which is essentially like there are enormous security risks with um, almost all the DeFi projects. Like uh, for a lot of them, the code base is not super easy to understand. And sometimes there's deliberate obfuscation of the code, which means uh, I think the developers actually try to uh, make it harder to understand for uh, like a regulatory arbitrage or decentralization purposes. Um, so those are, you know, various barriers, but I think we're kind of like in the motion, we're in the middle of this thing developing. So maybe, you know, two years from now, a lot more things are going to be very decentralized and, you know, maybe the original team that's working on it doesn't really need to update it anymore. And like a good example is a stable point, right? I think like stable point is something which is pretty necessary. Um, is the reason why USDT is like so popular even though everybody knows that uh, maybe it's like uh, under collateralized. I think if there's a good decentralized alternative that's really been tested over time, um, that's something that, that might be the next super solid building block. What is your definition of something being decentralized? Because like when I look at something like Uniswap, I guess it's decentralized because it's it's operating by itself. It is pretty simple. So it's almost like a real primitive. Like part of my criticism is like, I think these things yeah. are being intertwined too quickly. And like, yeah. even if someone's trying to be responsible, there's just, there's bad, there's bad uh, links in, in that, uh, in that chain. I'm curious, like what is actually your definition of these things becoming decentralized and what does that look like? I agree. I think it basically means it's completely operating by itself. I think right now, a lot of the, um, the Legos, they're still in the stage where people are actively trying to improve them, um, including like fixing various, like improving the features or like they have some websites where um, you can operate easily. So even Uniswap, they have a website, right? 
most people use the website. Somebody needs to like maintain the website. If the website goes down, uh, most people are not going to use it. Um, so I think that's really the end goal where more and more of the stuff is really going to operate by itself. Um, I think the middle piece is that um, if there's not so much value in these projects and people understand the risks going into it, uh, it's kind of a good test. And I think the high interest rates that's currently in DeFi, a lot of that is because um, people understand the risks. So the interest rates are like way higher than you would get in a checking or savings account. And I think that's a lot of that is because of the uh, unfamiliarity with the product, um, being cautious, like most people being cautious about um, putting a lot of money into it. Uh, and th- those are good things. So does this, does the mere existence of composability on Ethereum make your job as an auditor harder? It's harder. So a good example is um, uh, just recently uh, there was a hack for uh, BZX or exploit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, most well used money Legos, right? Um, so I think it does make it harder because uh, other projects that we audit, they uh, also use BZX. So um, we, we actually, after the uh, exploit was disclosed, we went back and basically checked all our DeFi projects to make sure that um, they're not interacting with the uh, under-collateralized Ethereum pool on BZX. Right. Um, so, so it does make it harder. Yeah. To, to my knowledge, BCX, BZX wasn't like, it wasn't an attack. There wasn't a, a chink in the armor. There wasn't a hole for an attacker to slip through. It wasn't like the DAO where there was a re-entrancy yeah. attack. It was an exploit. It was a, an exploit because of these, these new flash loan things that allowed, that really reduced the capital to be able to pull off the attack. So d- does Quantstamp do more than just, uh, you know, auditing code, but do, they, do you guys also do like economic uh, exploit audits as well? Do you guys do both sides of the, the spectrum there? Yeah. So um, like arguably, I think the BZX exploits it is a smart contract attack it's Mm. it's actually something that we look for in every audit um one of the reasons is that like i used to be a high frequency trader so um especially like when these money legos essentially uh they're um often dealing with rates of different assets uh i actually think this does encompass like it should be part of the audit um for the BZX attack, essentially, like you can think of it just as like um, an arbitrage between two different rates. So one rate is the one that like BZX offered, and another rate is something that you get if you um, cause massive slippage on a decentralized exchange. Uh, and yeah, I think um, having uh, other products that then uh, depend on these rates, that's basically where the, mm-hmm. it's like a misuse use of the money Legos, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, you know, I think Uniswap and Kyber weren't intended to give, to be used to offer a price for another asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so that's kind of like where you can have many money Legos that kind of fit together and you can like plug them into each other. But there's, I think there's good ways and bad ways to use money Legos. Hope that's uh, 
helpful. What you're saying, like I've heard this many times from people uh, on the Ethereum side and David saying that, hey, Uniswap is an Oracle. Like that's, you know, one of the features that it offers. Like how flexible do you think these things are? Like it seems like people can be very creative with how they use it. And uh, mm. I, I can imagine it's, it's almost impossible to fully think through all the game theoretical, you know, exploits that could exist. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about blockchain is that there's really no one price uh, on chain, right? So different um, marketplaces, they can have different prices that simultaneously exist. Um, the interesting thing about how Uniswap works is that um, it, it has this curve that allows you to incur a lot of slippage. So um, it's if you basically move it instantaneously, it's possible to have a really large price difference between say what is trading on Uniswap and where is trading on say like um, Binance or another large exchange. Um, so that's really, I think the main risk with using it as a um, source of prices, which is that like some bad actor can move that price uh, for like say like 300K and if they're levered somewhere else, they can make more than 300K, uh, which is basically uh, similar to what happened. So how does the introduction of flash loans um, mess up? Does it, so you, that is something that uh, maybe Explain we weren't flash really... Loans. Yeah, so flash loans are mm. a new tool, a new money Lego on Ethereum that just got introduced that has... Um, really fucked up a lot of stuff uh, all at once. And so what a flash loan does is that it, it allows you to borrow basically almost up to any amount of money in the protocol that you're borrowing from. It allows you to borrow it for free so long as you can provably return all of the money in the same transaction plus a small, plus a small fee. So there's no risk to the lender because in one transaction you borrow and then, and then return. And, and you, will, you would do this in order to take advantage of arbitrage opportunities across Ethereum. So you can liquidate people's CDP positions, you can liquidate people's um, uh, leverage long positions on DYDX, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just a, an opportunity to get a bunch of capital that you don't have so long as you can, and can return it all in one go. Uh, and this has been the source of the uh, BZX attack. And it's also been the source of just a bunch of other theoretical attacks on governance. And so like the other, the, the thing that we're all worried about right now is, is the, uh, a flash loan attack on the MakerDAO system, where if some, somebody can borrow a sufficient number of, of MKR, I think that number is like 115,000 right now. If you, can, if you can borrow that much, you can make a voting proposal on MakerDAO, which would liquidate basically the, all of the Ether inside of MakerDAO to, re, to give it to the attacker. Uh, and so flash loans wasn't really something that we uh, really anticipated as an Ethereum community. Uh, at least I didn't uh, in, in, you know, up until very recently. So, so Richard, my, my question to you is how has flash loans impacted you and QuantStamp as, as an auditing firm? Yeah, um, I think... Uh, so for flash loans, um, many of these attacks, they're actually possible without flash loans, right? The difference is that like now the playing field has been leveled between, um, you know, people that have like millions of dollars of assets and people that have nothing. Uh, you can, as long as, um, and I guess, yeah, it's a really cool thing because uh, this kind of, it's a new, it's a completely new invention. Um, when I used to work at Tower Research, we actually had something similar because uh, each 
trading team, we would be allocated a certain amount of capital. But if there was a really big opportunity, it's possible to like borrow for a short amount of time, like tens of millions of dollars uh, to do that arbitrage opportunity. And the high view flash loans is that you can imagine like there is an arbitrage opportunity out there. And uh, essentially I view these hacks as like closing arbitrage opportunity. And it's more about making it easier to perform that activity. Um, and yeah, I think in terms of, uh, in terms of the impact, it's that uh, previously, like uh, I think when we suggested to clients that um, a sufficiently resourced attacker can uh, do these things like move the rate on uh, some other platform, like more than 20% so that it wipes out the collateral. It's more of a theoretical um, issue because uh, if you think about from the perspective of the attacker, right? Say you had $10 million and you wanted to perform an attack. Now, arguably, like that's illegal. So um, if you actually use your $10 million and they're somehow tied to your identity, when you get like $11 million back from the attack and you try to pull it out into, uh, try to anonymize it, that is really hard with like, $11 million because most of the mixers and other um, ways to get anonymity is either on like a mixer that's only handling small volumes or um, via some over-the-counter desk that's not checking for your identity. Um, but the biggest source is obviously on centralized exchanges and now KYC has been uh, enforced on all of them. Um, being like avoiding tainting that large amount of cryptocurrency is um, that's the main effect of these flash loans. And so before perhaps like you had discovered this attack, but you can only perform it with a small amount of money. And so it didn't really make a lot of sense. It was better to report the bug and hopefully get like a $20,000 bug bounty from the project. Uh, but now it makes a lot more sense because you use other people's money to attack the project. At the end, you re return their money. So that's completely not tied to you. And the only part that you need to um, anonymize is your uh, gains from the activity. Uh, so I would say that's the biggest impact. And it means that when we do every single audit, um, we do need to make it clear to clients that uh, these are not like hypothetical scenarios anymore. Yeah, hope, hope that's... <laughs> Oh, no, that was, that was great. I think the, the big takeaway I got out of that is blockchains uh, are really, or cryptocurrency is really just democratizing access to market manipulation, uh, which yeah. I mean, uh, it's always funny to see that, that there's a big narrative around, around with crypto is that like, basically it's giving financial services that used to only be available to the, the super wealthy. And now it's giving them to, to everyone. Uh, and that includes market manipulation. Now, now everyone can be a market manipulator. Um, ultimately, I think Ethereum will come out and just be much more efficient uh, once it gets through this trial period where it learns that now every single protocol on Ethereum needs to be able to account for flash loans in their development and in their structure. Um, once we get through this period, we'll, I think we'll just be a sharper, more efficient system. Yeah, these things, you know, um, they actually exist in traditional financial systems. So, uh, on futures markets, there's something called banging the close, which is basically like um, 
you can buy a lot of stocks right near when the future is about to close. And if you have a large position, levered position in the futures, you can move the spot market and make money like that. Um, the difference is that, that here, it's not legal. Not legal. Um, okay. Yeah. But uh, the difference is here, I think like it's completely um, global and basically anybody can do it. Uh, but it also means like anybody can also access the positive things, right? So um, for a lot of people now, like their checking account yields close to zero or, you know, if you have a savings account, it's like 0.3%. So I'd imagine in the future, once these things are really solid, um, people get like a better way to manage their um, financial well-being. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's getting there is still ways off. But yeah. I definitely, I just have to always push back. Like if you, you, I feel like you can't use interest rates as a selling point because if it becomes less of a risky thing and more liquidity, liquidity flows to it, then like interest rates won't be it. Permissionlessness. I can give you that, but mm. I, I don't, I just feel like the interest rates thing, like it's just not a real sell because we know that it's temporary. That's a good point. Um, for, because uh, I travel to like different places. I've like lived in different countries. Um, I think that the availability of uh, stable source of savings is actually not like uh, universally available. So in many countries, it's actually very hard to make um, US dollar accounts. Um, and, you know, to get a, like a US dollar account that also yields some form of savings is pretty hard the closest like alternative people have now is um yeah like buying bitcoin uh as a store of value uh, which you know i think they, some people have done but it's, it's not widely available um and i think just because like you're born in a certain country uh, that's really where like having this kind of stable savings account could be helpful. Um, but yeah, I could be wrong about that. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on how. Uh, <laughs> no, totally, totally. We, we actually agree. Yeah. We actually agree. It's about the permissionlessness. It's not the interest rates. I think if I'm they just... can make like a truly permission stable coin that yields some sort of savings rate, it's, it's something that's good for everyone. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a valiant effort. Um, we'll see if it if it actually makes sense in the long term. I want to talk about like what like obviously this flash loans is a um, is a black swan almost type of an event in DeFi. Like what other kind of attack vectors are there? I'm very interested. I feel like you would know best. Mm. I think the the one that people overlook is like um, denial of service because. Uh, these type of flash loan things, they're pretty sexy. Like, um, you know, everybody tries to figure out like how it happened and there's like millions of dollars moving back and forth. And then somehow like the attacker makes off with it, like throws it into tornado cash and like disappears. Right. But, um, I think the biggest risk for these like permissionless systems is actually, uh, if there's a way to, freeze everything that's happening and basically prevent users from like depositing or withdrawing their um, cryptocurrency. Um, so often we look for those type of attacks where uh, 
somebody can trigger like the self-destruct method or um you know there's like some piece of code that should be run uh let's say like uh every couple of blocks and then you can basically spam the network for those number of blocks and prevent that thing from happening um so i would categorize all these things in like denial of service um it's less of a problem on like uh, the traditional internet because uh, if you try and try to spam a website now there's like cloud servers so they can kind of rebalance the load and like move like uh, try to cancel out the attack or like things of Cloudflare um, but with blockchain it's kind of like a shared service for everybody so um, you don't really have that ability to rebalance uh, the load from attack um, so I think, yeah, like those type of yeah, denial of service, that's one thing we look for. Um, either triggering the, something in the code that leads it into some unexpected place where the programmers haven't figured out what to do with that state and just get locked in that state. The other one that we look for is taking control of like um, some reserved administrator functions. Um, and so, you know, that's... Uh, there's uh, lots of different ways to potentially do that. Um, and if you just place two different functions, one which is like checking if only the owner can do this and the other one is performing the function and you just reverse them. So you perform the function first and then you check if it's the owner that's doing these things, that will allow these attacks to happen. And I think these attacks Fundamentally, they're caused by the centralization of power, which is that some um, users, they have extra privileges. And so I think also over time, um, maybe these privileges will get reduced uh, and it will kind of remove that as an attack vector. Yeah, hope, hope that's helpful. So over time, how, has, uh, how have you seen applications on Ethereum uh, progress? Have, have the, the coders that are building these things that QuantStamp are, is auditing, uh, how has how the skills and the complexity and the robustness of these applications changed over time? The skills have increased a lot. Um, but uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword because... In the beginning, like let's say two and a half years ago, people are building simple things. Today, I think they're a lot more skilled, but people are building really complicated things. So um, today, a lot of the code, it's, uh, it's definitely much larger than before. And typically, like I think for developers, every 100 lines of code, there's one bug. Um, so as like the number of lines of code increase, so does the uh, chance that there's like some missing equal sign or it should be like equal equals and it's a single equal or these type of things um i think people's ideas have uh, really like there's been a kind of explosion in like working apps that have cool functionality uh a lot of these things like i think people talked about two years ago but today um they work and so like some examples of that is uh um, there's a company called Ramp, and they, they're basically like in six to 12 lines of code, you can build in a fiat on Ramp into your um, smart contract. So that's like something that people have wanted for, yeah, you know, a couple of years. And 
today some company has done it it's kind of like the stripe for crypto um i think like uh sablier is a really good project because um you know when i was working for a company it occurred to me that like you the you basically like your employer kind of is also it's always indebted to you because uh you get paid at the end of like every two weeks or every month but there's really no way to um get your salary every single day because it's like too much cost so they basically allow you to like stream your money continuously and um i think that's like pretty good because it changes the indebtedness of uh, the employer to you it makes it more equal um and yeah there's like lots of um good projects like that i think another good category of projects is like um projects that are bringing bitcoin liquidity to uh, a wider audience so um we've added like five of these uh, you know includes like rsk and also kava labs so kava they're building something that's like makerdao but allows you to use bitcoin um and so you can basically like use bitcoin as collateral and issue stable um dollars and uh that's really great because um there's a lot more people that hold bitcoin than most of the smaller coins and i think if there's like a robust system that allows um more uses for your bitcoin um it's it's really great for the growth of the ecosystem has Quantstamp ever audited a company that's trying to bring Bitcoin to Ethereum? Um, yeah, so um, we've uh, audited uh, something called Hashflow. It's a new project. Um, they're trying to enable you to uh, permissionlessly swap Bitcoin to the Ethereum chain. Um, the other one that we've uh recently audited is called Echo um and it's basically using the Ethereum virtual machine and uh trying to bring defi to bitcoin holders um and it's you know supposed to be interoperable with ethereum the they already built like a working um prototype but i think, I think sometime this year it will uh get released the other one that's very close to that is called RSK. So RSK um cuz we audited it the internals is very similar to web3. Uh very very similar. And so I think that's where um you get a lot of the same functionality uh but uh now you can kind of yeah cross uh between the two. Yeah and obviously Kava they're directly bringing bitcoin onto ethereum so um they they kind of had this like cross chain approach there yeah so so it looks like you've seen a, a number of different implementations for how to get bitcoin to ethereum uh are you particularly bullish on that happening in general like do you think that bitcoin do you think that it, the whatever is being built is what is needed to be built in order to successfully bring bring bitcoin to ethereum I think we haven't seen it yet. Um okay. there's also another project called TBTC that um was pretty yeah it's starting to become well known. Mm -hmm. Um Bitgo they also tried to make a version where um they would just issue the assets. It's kind of like a tether approach. 
uh, I think so far nothing has uh, taken off yet. Um, uh, so that's my candid evaluation. Um, I think eventually it will uh, work because um, a lot of the things that people are doing with Ether or Ethereum, I think people will want to do with Bitcoin, like earn interest in the Bitcoin. Like if you're a hodler um, and there's a way to safely earn interest on it, I think that's something that people will want. So. Sure. Um, it's interesting to, to kind of dive down this Bitcoin on Ethereum topic, because I think that if Ether is going, if like Ethereum is going to be successful, then it needs Bitcoin, especially as long as Bitcoin is the dominant like reserve asset of the space. Like it wants like getting Bitcoin onto Ether is going to be beneficial for Ether and it'll help Ether at, or Ethereum as a platform continue to be relevant. My question is, is Ethereum going to be able to compete with other platforms, centralized and decentralized, to actually command Bitcoin? I'm curious to hear like, what your thoughts are about Bitcoin more widely and, and how Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of meld together. I think the, the kind of target purpose is a bit different, right? So Bitcoin is more of a store of value. The developments like uh, focus is more conservative because uh, there's so much value riding on it. I think Ethereum is trying to build some bridges into it. That's how I would kind of describe, like um, building some bridges to a certain subset of Bitcoin holders. Um, but more widely, you know, I think there's like trade-offs because uh, if you imagine like in um, Web2 technology, there's actually many different competing platforms for each thing. Like uh, if you want to use a cloud platform, there's like Microsoft, Google, like uh, a lot of different choices. Um, I think that will kind of play out is different people will like use something depending on their choices, except for um, web two, it's like pretty easy to switch between the choices, right? So, um, you know, if you want to like, yeah, store your files. You can use like Dropbox, but then you just move them all to like, um, you know, Google Drive pretty easily. Um, right now, it's actually pretty hard to switch between these things. Uh, so I think that's where we're heading. Basically, like over time, people are going to build bridges, and over time, some of those bridges are going to be pretty robust. Um, and I mean, the good thing is that it will add additional functionality to Bitcoin. So people can choose to use it or not use it. Um, it doesn't really change the fundamental value proposition or like the ethos. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. Do you think about like the monetary aspects of these things a lot or, or not really? The way I think about like the monetary aspects of these things is that um, if you look at um, crypto as a whole, like I think for individual assets like Bitcoin, there's a fixed rate of issuance and so uh, fixed rate of inflation. But because of like the creation of many different chains, I think that in aggregate, the inflation rate is much higher if you look across of every single asset that's being issued. Um, and I think over time, uh, people would become more cognizant of that. And that might... Um, uh, have people be more careful about investing in new um, up-and-coming chains. The other aspect that I think is uh, 
in terms of the monetary aspect, like there's kind of um, I think that the um, time between transactions actually is a pretty important um, aspect of like how you can get more people using something. So um, like when we look at auditing layer two solutions like uh, Plasma or other layer two solutions targeting Bitcoin, um, fundamentally that, uh, you know, the, the block time, it does feed into um, how many transactions you can make or you can try to like add on to this systems. Um, that's something which like doesn't really exist with traditional money because uh, it's essentially been digitized. So you can, um, you know, with those systems, you can send it instantly actually. Um, so I think that's something people will think about more as time goes by. So Richard, I have one last question for you as, as we wrap this up. Uh, what, mm. what is something that Bitcoiners tend to not understand or get wrong about DeFi? And what is something that Ethereans tend to get wrong or don't understand about DeFi? Ooh, okay, Bitcoiners. I think there's a lot of different viewpoints that are, um, it's because like uh, people haven't really looked at the source code. And so I see this quite a lot. Because uh, I think a lot of the opinions are more informed by um, understanding the like kind of the memes or the core ideas um, of the technology, whereas like uh, I think for the people who have like um, looked at the source code, you can have a more informed opinion just based on like the um, how solid something is or how robust it is, and like. Um, you know, if it's like a similar level of robustness as um, the way like Bitcoin has been written, that does, I think, in my mind, um, give it a high mark. Also, I think a lot of it is more driven by personalities because uh, in many ways, like uh, there's a lot of strong personalities in crypto. And I think people choose based on the personalities rather than like the fundamental merits of like uh, the different platforms, you know. That's kind of my view for uh, most of the camps in crypto, because as a percentage of population, um, I think people who like uh, are interested is still like a pretty small percentage of the population. Um, so definitely we're a lot more similar than uh, we're different. I think like most people actually value a lot of like really similar things. Um, so that's, that's kind of uh, my view on it i don't have like specific examples for like what people tend to get wrong mm -hmm. um yeah it's hard to think of like um because even inside of the the different groups there's a lot of different types of personalities so right yeah yeah no that, that totally drives with kind of how i view these two systems like in, in my knowledge there's there's really only two functioning blockchains out there bitcoin and ethereum and because because of that truth uh, it, it obviously means that these two systems are much closer, much more similar than they are different. So I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, if you think about just like the actual, like we're kind of all along here, there's like this tiny slice of the population just right around here. And literally all of this is like people that, you know, have still um, don't really know or haven't really have a nuanced understanding yet. Um, so that's kind of how I view it right now. Perfect spot to wrap it up. Uh, I mean, ultimately, 
what this podcast has uncovered to me is that there's a lot more there's a lot more similarities across the different camps that are in cryptocurrency than uh, there are dissimilarities. It's just more styles or favorites or like you said, personalities that they attract to. I think also just like even your political demeanor. Uh, plays into uh, which which coin or philosophy makes the most sense to you. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you and who do you want to hear from? You can find me, uh, I'm a pretty private person, but you can follow us on um, Twitter at Quantstamp. As a final footnote, I like the personalities. Because um, like, I used to work in machine learning. And to be honest, like people were so passionate about like which... Uh, machine learning platform to use i find it pretty entertaining that people can get so passionate it's a really great thing um and yeah uh you know that's uh i think who who else to hear from so one of our favorite people is uh richard brown from maker um he's kind of like an unsung hero because i think almost nobody like 100%. knows who he is um but 100%. actually he's kind of like um he's kind of like one of the architects of uh, these money Legos because uh, at the end of the day, you know, behind all these companies, it's just people all the way down. And so ultimately it's like finding the right people. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's a cool person. I feel like to uh, are from for sure. Oh yeah. Richard Brown. I, I couldn't give higher praises, praises to uh, if, if there's any man closer to the heartbeat of the maker Dow community and ecosystem, it would be him. Yeah, it's a good yeah. one. And he's not I on Twitter like he because he's working so hard. Parts of Richard questions. And that, yeah, <laughs> no, he did great. It's a good one. Oh. All right, guys. I really appreciate of it. Of course, guys. this is an awesome episode, Richard. You guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto. You can follow me at Trustless, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian, you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. You can find all the podcasts that I'm at. We'll be retweeting them from at POV Crypto Pod. Um, but yeah, making a little road show. Uh, I think David's going to be having a surprise to announce pretty soon as well about other content he's creating. So uh, you know us, always making great stuff. Thanks again, Richard. And everyone, thank you for listening. Will you just see?